0: You've likely been hearing on the news last night, the Vancouver School Board voted to cancel the school liaison officer program with Vancouver Police. And joining me now is Jennifer Reddy, One City Vancouver School Board trustee, to talk more about this. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, What was your thoughts first on what was in front of the board as far as the motion and the decision?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, we've been a year uh, in review on the question of police in schools, and in Vancouver we call that the school liaison officer program uh, in particular. So it was really a result of thousands of individuals asking for the removal of police in schools that brought this decision to the board uh, finally last
0: night. And how did you vote?
1: Yes, yeah, so uh, after the review, we had lots of anecdotal information from students who are currently in the district, uh, including their personal experiences in school and out of schools with police. Um, and if you were able to check out the motion, there certainly is an immediate removal uh, at the end of June of school liaison officer programming in schools. However, it doesn't unequivocally clearly state that police and schools will be removed, especially as the remainder of the motion delineates all the ways in which we will continue working with the police department and the rcmp so i wasn't in favor of it
0: and you weren't in favor spe- specifically why
1: yeah um so
0: centering the the vpd and
1: rcmp in the next steps really dismisses what we learned in the last year so for me as a trustee to be listening to individual young people in our district uh children and youth uh, recount experiences of harm uh talking about the impacts of being racially profiled, um, experiencing uh, criminalization if you have a mental health issue, uh, if you disclose or share or have a perceived identity. Um, So hearing about that and how it affects their access to public education and that in cases it actually prevents them from coming back to school is really where uh, my focus is. And that wasn't addressed uh, in the motion yesterday um, and unfortunately wasn't mentioned at all.
0: Uh, So saying that that people that that filled out or were part uh, of the survey and the study that was done and and the research that was done this past year on the program, uh, can you say or do you know then how many students came forward and and said the things that you just said, said these were happening uh, with the liaison officer in their schools?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So absolutely, we we don't have... um, uh, only a numbers conversation to be had about this topic Uh, and in fact we speak a lot about equity in education and education as the great uh, equalizer in in a sense and what that means is when you get data that has a majority of individuals saying I'm indifferent, I feel good about the program and then a specific percentage uh, saying this causes me harm and is preventing me from accessing my right to education that's the part that actually needs to be assessed with an equity lens otherwise what we're doing is We are forgetting that rights, especially children's rights, like other human rights, are relational. So one person's experience of harm must be um, prioritized as something to be addressed uh, over another person's perception of feeling safe or indifferent, in fact, about having police in schools.
0: Uh, looking at the review, though, that was done, the Argyle Communications review uh, of looking at the, the, the spectrum of experiences that people, students, parents, educators had had uh, with this program, uh, it did come back 47% of Indigenous students that took part of this pro- that survey said that they felt having officers helped foster a sense of safety. So how does getting rid of the program help people who felt it did foster a sense of safety?
1: Yeah, exactly. I think this is the piece that's so important from an equity-based perspective. So that perception of safety for a majority of individuals is at the expense of harm for a specific demographic of students who are already marginalized. So kids who maybe aren't coming to school without having had breakfast or lunch, kids who live in poverty, who have income insecurity, um, kids who struggle with mental health, who identify as Indigenous, Black, trans, queer, uh, two-spirited, and so what we end up having is a, is a disproportionate impact. But this isn't only a Vancouver School District conversation in my mind, and as probably you know and have heard, that across Canada and our continent, we're looking at systemic racism in institutions like policing. Um, and right now, our my focus is public education and, and the barriers that have been raised to my awareness around specific demographic of students and children facing barriers to accessing education. Uh,
0: So is there not a way then to improve on the program? Why does the program have to be discontinued altogether?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great question. Uh, For me, the request, the demands, the calls to action from community are about clear removal. So once uh, as a decision maker, I can decide on that, then we could have a different conversation. I think the review was specifically focus on that first question and unfortunately by sort of uh, going ahead and suggesting that now we're going to start evolving this relationship uh, doesn't get at what the request was originally asking for which is removal. Absolutely we need to have conversations about safety, culturally sensitive programming, um, what kids want to see in spaces in their district but we didn't ask those questions and therefore we can't really confirm what the needs are.
0: Right. Uh, If somebody was to just look at this and not read, uh, again, the report, which I think is about 211 pages and not really go into it, just looking at some of the coverage and some of the way that this program is being described, you might think that this program was 15 officers with the Vancouver Police Department who were put into schools with the only objective to pick on and... Single out uh, people who look different, students who were black and indigenous and racialized and to make their lives hell. That's obviously not the program. But if anything like that was happening, would that not have been addressed already? That's another great point. Absolutely. I think that's the harm that we heard of that didn't show up
1: at the board table last night. So the, that harm that you mentioned in the report, unfortunately, isn't something that was brought to the board table. Um, it will absolutely be my commitment to ensure that the harm that we've learned about is accounted for and addressed. Um, anytime a young person experiences any sort of daily interaction of harm or violence in our district, in, in the schools that I'm meant to lead and govern, is absolutely my business and purpose for being there. So those are concerns that I continue to work on and will bring forward.
0: Right. But that's kind of my point. Isn't it hard to believe that that, that would be happening every day in this program? That that just seems un, unfathomable.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, look at our city right now. We have a group of young Indigenous leaders, the Braided Warriors, um, having to face a legal uh, standoff with the RCMP, with the VPD. Um, so I, I agree with you. I, I think it is hard to believe it's, it's it's a sad state that young people are in having to advocate for their basic rights.
0: What do you say to students that wanted this program to stay? We've had people calling into this program saying my liaison officer was the one thing that kept me from being involved in a gang. This was the person I could go to in school. There are many positive stories as well. Those voices, I think in some sense feel like they have not been heard in this conversation.
1: Yeah, that's a really great point. And, and kind of going back to the rights piece, like one person's sense of safety, uh, it has limits to another person's sense of fear and discrimination. And that's how rights would work uh, in any setting, even, even between us as adults. And so It's really important to have this in concert, that they're they're not equally weighted uh, comments, concerned experiences. And at the real core of it, we're not really speaking about individual one-off experiences. We're also speaking about the appropriateness of these systems to be together. We're we're in 2021, we're having conversations around what schools, what public infrastructure can and could look like. Um, And this isn't part of that. And that's what we've heard loud and clear from community.
0: All right, we'll have to leave it there. Jennifer Reddy, thanks for your time today. Appreciate it. Pleasure. Thank you so much. Jennifer Reddy is a One City Vancouver School Board trustee. Talking more about an idea that could open up some parts of the city to perhaps more patios and more spaces where there wouldn't be vehicles, there would be more space for people and pedestrians. And Sarah Kirby Young joins me now, an independent Vancouver City Councillor. Thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. How are you doing? Very well. How about you? Good. Great. Thank you. Uh, You're taking a look, or or kind of floating the idea of something like part of Granville Street, or even some other neighborhoods, uh, of shutting it down to vehicle traffic. Where would you like, or where do you think this would work best? Yeah, I I am floating the
2: idea, and it's building off of the pop-up patios and the temporary expedited patio program we put in place in response to COVID last summer. And it was overwhelmingly positive. The city issued, I think, about 415 temporary patios. And then um, permits. And then you saw pop-up patios in neighborhoods across the city. And, you know, just a couple weekends ago, I was in one on Canby Street and just seeing people come together and sit at picnic tables distance and grab some food from the local businesses and just be in their neighborhoods. It was a chance for people to connect and come together. So with the extended patio restrictions um, or extended dining restrictions, I think it's a huge opportunity to be bolder with our use of public space.
0: Uh, one of the ideas is the Granville Mall, that, uh, or a stretch of Granville Street, uh, making it a pedestrian promenade. How likely do you think that would be, given that that is a pretty major transit route?
2: I think that's actually a terrific opportunity, um, and we certainly could work with TransLink uh, to facilitate that. It could be a, a closure throughout the entire summer, or it could be after the morning bus traffic goes through, um, and then sort of um, pedestrian, you know, people-friendly pedestrian first for the afternoons evenings and weekends, um, because I think that there's such a huge appetite for people to get outside. So think of, um, you know, that sort of having that restaurant row concept, people being able to gather during a summer. We know that uh, vaccination process is slow and COVID restrictions are going to continue. But all of the other uses that could happen there, you could have a stage for musicians to perform who are starved um, to have the opportunity to perform in front of people. You could have farmers markets, craft markets people sitting at at tables outside enjoying uh, takeaway from local restaurants. So I think it could be phenomenal and a a real um, destination in the summer. Uh,
0: And have you talked to TransLink then about what it it would take or if that's even possible? I know that
2: TransLink has indicated they'd be willing to have that conversation um, and we have had to work with them in the past uh, during events like the Olympics and others when transit has been rerouted. Uh, We are in the midst of a pandemic now and so I think that everybody's trying to be flexible to respond to to supporting our businesses
0: through this. Uh, Do you think it would also be a way, and I know there's other areas where this could work as well, but that particular stretch of Granville uh, over the past year, many people and business owners have watched it deteriorate uh, with uh, a lot of broken windows. Uh, Cleanliness has become an issue in many parts. Would this be a way of of reclaiming uh, that part of the street?
2: Yeah, I think I think it does need some TLC and some love and we can't abandon Granville Street, notwithstanding the issues with um, people that were relocated to Howard Johnson Hotel. And I think it's clearly been identified that additional supports were needed there that were lacking. um, And that remains a priority. But there's also a vision for revitalization of Granville Street in general and longer term planning. And I think this is a way that we could pilot and show what's really possible in this area to support a great destination and a cultural hub, an entertainment hub, a dining hub. Um, just a real place for people to go and gather and be together.
0: Uh, people might be surprised to to know as well that given the amount of patios that have popped up and starting as you mentioned last spring, last summer, uh, some on sidewalks, some going onto streets, and that that there are still uh, there's still a fee system in place for a lot of restaurants depending on where the seats are. I understand you're going to be bringing that or asking that uh, that be looked at as well.
2: I did. I did bring an amendment just at a recent council meeting that we look at waiving all patio fees for 2021 for everyone, whether they had a, a, a permanent patio or and then obviously the temporary patio is free. Um, but uh, we will get a report back on May 18th at council, and I'm hopeful that council will support that. And then um, that'll provide some relief to those small businesses who desperately need it. Uh,
0: did you get any response at all or do you have an idea on, on which way councils, different counselors are going to be going on that?
2: Uh, this council has been really supportive of small business and of the restaurant program. So I'm hopeful that they'll they'll support that as well. So fingers crossed. I'm, 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 I'm feeling good about it.
0: Because it does see, it seems uh, that uh, given this, I mean, I, I know it's a difference if somebody has a permanent patio and now they've been able to throw it through tables and chairs, uh, say, onto the sidewalk or onto the street. But it kind of seems like isn't that the main goal just to make sure these businesses can stay afloat?
2: Yeah, absolutely. We want these businesses to be there for us when the pandemic is over. They add so much variety and um, livability and enjoyment to our neighborhoods, and they're also um, significant economic contributors. About eighty percent of our businesses in the city of Vancouver are small business; they employ less than a hundred people. Um, and when you spend your money at the local businesses, it stays in the local economy. So there's a lot of reasons for them to survive, um, for us to help them survive through the pandemic, and I want to ensure that we do our best to do that.
0: Uh, There is generally some pushback, though, getting back to the first idea of shutting streets down to to vehicle traffic. And Granville Street, probably not as much because so much of it is already uh, only transit vehicles. Are there other parts of the city, though, you would like to see or at least look at possibly uh, shutting them down and making them more pedestrian plazas and such?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think you have to look at each neighbourhood, but look at the recently reopened plaza um, on the side of the Vancouver Art Gallery, which has become an incredibly popular space um, and gives people a space to spread out free from traffic, um, enjoy the outdoors. Um, and you've seen pop-up plazas, at, we close streets sometimes for specific events. Think of car-free days on Main Street. So I can see a combination of sort of dedicated areas, potentially on Granville Street, if a pilot went well, um, to sort of pop-up closures that could happen um, more for sort of weekend use, for example, in specific neighbourhoods.
0: Uh, and there have been issues as well with, with uh, umbrellas and roofing. Has that been dealt with as far as, I know there's the idea of sight lines and can't get in the way of that, but it also seems in, in Vancouver, you're really limiting the amount of time you can use an outdoor seating area if there's not some kind of shelter overhead.
2: Yeah, I, I, I've changed, uh, used to, I started off using the term winterize and I've changed it to weatherize now in Vancouver because you're right, we get a lot of the wet stuff. Um, and the ability to have the protection can really extend the life of those. I think that the city of Vancouver is really willing to do that. Right now, the driving force is really the provincial health restrictions to ensure that there is the appropriate airflow for COVID. So I think that what you'll see in the short term through the pandemic will be a bit different than what we come out with the other side in terms of um, outdoor
0: structures. Uh, And what about safety issues that have been raised about the patios that are on the streets, the ones that take up actual parking spaces and do put people pretty close to vehicles that are still whipping by?
2: Yeah, that's a very valid and a very real concern. The patio program was a really quick response to provide immediate relief to restaurants. Um, And I think you need to look at each neighborhood. As the city is developing now, we are building wider sidewalks. um, As streets are redone, you'll see that happen along Broadway, for example, um, when with the new uh, Broadway subway coming in and uh, in other neighbourhoods. And something like Granville Street, that's why I think a Granville Street promenade or a you know, pedestrian-first promenade makes a lot of sense in that area. It already has wide sidewalks, and it would provide that ability for people to
0: um, enjoy a space that's all theirs. All right. When do you think we might know more about this?
2: Um, I'm going to call notice on a motion on this um, to support the Downtown Vancouver BIA, who's um, championing and supporting this idea as well. Um, And then I would expect it to be on the May 18th council session.
0: All right. We will check back then. Counselor, thanks so much for joining us today. Appreciate it. No worries. Thanks for taking interest. That is Sarah Kirby Young, an independent Vancouver uh, City Councillor. Well, have you added a furry family member during the pandemic? If so, you are not alone. We've been seeing a lot of new information about just how many people have uh, taken this opportunity, whether it's because you're working from home or for some other reason, taken this opportunity to finally uh, get that dog or cat or other type of animal. Well, could there be a shortage when it comes to veterinarians to help us care? for the furry members of our family my next guest says yes and bc liberal agriculture critic and mla for delta south ian payton is joining me on the line now to talk more about this thanks so much for being with us
3: hi Joe. good afternoon
0: good afternoon Uh, your thoughts on this uh, you've uh, put out a call that uh, the current government needs to do more to address this critical shortage what kind of a shortage are we looking at uh, in bc when it comes to veterinarians
3: well, you know, Jill, what we're looking at is, um, because as you said in the pre, preempt, um, the, the COVID-19 pandemic has really got people out doing things that they sort of never thought about doing, as including, uh, you know, gardening and all these different things. But one thing they've certainly been doing is, is even in my own family, my, my, both my children have gone out and purchased pets, and, and that's happening all over the province. To keep people company because people are shut in and whatnot. So there's a, a massive influx of new uh, puppies and kittens and different things in the province. Even young people that have taken to uh, leasing horses and getting into uh, horse riding and different things like that. So with that, of course, becomes uh, the, the, uh, you know, the, the opportunity for people to have to have veterinary service in their, their area to be able to look after the, the daily trials and tribulations of owning pets.
0: Uh, have you been hearing then from veterinarians or people in the industry uh, that are also concerned about this?
3: Oh, absolutely, Jill. So, there's the BC chapter of uh, the Veterinarians Association and they have been in contact with me constantly. In fact, I did a 10-minute speech in the legislature in the legislature yesterday morning expelling the the total need for more veterinarians, uh, the stress and anxiety that veterinarians are facing nowadays with the overload of patients. They can't actually come inside of of vet clinics. They have to sort of present their animal at the door. Uh, I even talked about, can you imagine... Um, you know what veterinarians are going through with the extra load but but having to uh, you know face the end of life with having to put people 's pets down that 's a very emotional stressful thing for veterinarians to have to take home with them every night, dealing with people that are inconsolable about losing their pets and it 's a veterinarian that sort of has to do the uh, the deed so um, yeah i I made this ten minute um, beach yesterday in the legislature and it really comes down to more seats at the vet college at the university of saskatchewan
0: and so how how easy would that be or how difficult would it be as far as opening up more seats and and getting access
3: so jill here's the story so every year um each province in the western provinces would be uh... roughly twenty seats so uh... the, the bc government would fund twenty um, student seats to go into the the uh... veterinary medical college in saskatchewan each year for bc students uh, but Alberta, which also had roughly 20, decided to create their own vet school in in Calgary a few years ago, so that opened up an extra 20 seats that are available, and the college in Saskatchewan said definitely we could, we could take 20 more BC students, so that would make 40 BC students a year, and trust me, there's 145 willing people that are bright that really want to become veterinarians, that are only getting the opportunity at 20 seats each year at the uh, Vet College in Saskatchewan. So what we're we're asking is for the Ministry of Advanced Education to fund those extra 20 seats so we can get 20 more graduated veterinarians every year, uh, totaling 40 instead of 20 each year.
0: Uh, Are there not other provinces or uh, others that would want to access those seats, or is it a, a guarantee that BC could have them if they funded them?
3: Well, according to the information I got, um, that the uh, college has basically said that those 20 seats would be available to British Columbia if the government wanted to fund those seats. And in the last couple of years, because those seats weren't taken up by B.C., they were uh, offered out to uh, other students from across Canada or to foreign students. And one of the issues there is if a foreign student takes up one of those seats, uh, possibly they get their degree and possibly go back to the country they're from, which doesn't help uh, veterinarian shortages in British Columbia.
0: Oh, do you know what the cost is as far as funding an extra 20 seats, what that would cost the government? Yeah. Uh,
3: yeah, well, actually the the cost per student, you know, to keep costs down of course, would be probably around $11,000 per year. But when you picture a medical facility such as a, a and I've actually been there because my brother Dave is a veterinarian of horses up in uh Langley, So I went back there years ago to visit the uh, open house at the college. So it's an extremely expensive process for the college to operate, to educate students with all the, the fancy medical uh, facilities they have there. So uh, the cost is around $11,000 per student, the actual student cost. But you can imagine it's probably six or seven times that amount for the actual university to um, to you know educate those students so that's why provincial governments need to add funding to to cut the costs
0: right so cuz i think the number i had seen somebody had done the math saying to fund the extra 80 or sorry 20 seats uh, it could, could cost the bill would be around 8 million dollars a year so that's really subsidizing the tuition or what is what the student is paying
3: yeah correct i think the you're right the uh, the figure was around 8.3 million dollars to um to subsidize those extra 20 seats per year. Uh,
0: Do you know if there's been any research or looking into, like you said, Alberta went ahead and set up their own college seats. So what would stop BC from looking at existing schools and seeing what the cost would be to add veterinary programs in this province?
3: Um, Well... (laughs) You know, I'm actually, you know, not a veterinarian, of course, and I'm the agriculture critic for the B.C. Liberal Party. I'm basically just um, on behalf of uh, my brother, who's a veterinarian, and many other veterinarians that I know. Because, Jill, as you know, uh, for many years I was a dairy farmer myself, so uh, we've had so many experiences over the years with veterinarians that have come to the farm, uh, and often in the middle of the night uh, doing incredible work on large animals, uh, with, you know, difficult birthings and C-sections and all sorts of different things. So um, having visited the uh, the veterinary college in Saskatchewan, I mean, it's a massively expensive uh, facility of, of equipment and, and all the different things that you would to train even a medical student or a, a medical student surgeon. So uh, it's just not about veterinarians checking uh, kittens and puppies. It's specialized veterinarians that... Um, specialize in surgery and and all sorts of different things like that. So um, the fact that I think there's two, maybe three vet schools in Canada, there's University of Saskatchewan, Guelph, and Calgary, and I think it would just be extremely expensive to try and recreate another one in British Columbia.
0: Right. Did you get any response to your call for this?
3: Well, no. Actually, the critic for advanced education is Coralie Oakes from Cornell. And Coralie and I have both uh, um, put together a letter to the Minister of Agriculture and to the Minister, Anne Kang, of advanced education, saying that, you know, the opportunity is there. All we need is for the Ministry of Advanced Education with the BCNDP government to step up and fund another 20 uh, seats at the University of Saskatchewan Vet College for another year. So it's quite a, a simple uh, ask, and we've sent this letter off to them just yesterday. And as, as I said, I, I made my speech for it was a pretty uh, compelling speech yesterday morning. Hopefully we'll get some answers as soon as possible.
0: All right. So we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for joining the program to talk about this.
3: Jill, thanks so much. Anytime.
0: That is BC Liberal Agriculture critic and MLA for Delta South, Ian Payton, uh, talking about the need for more veterinary seats to train veterinarians for this province. Well, in Delta, the City of Delta, Council has given final approval to a pilot program, and that is going to make it legal for people to consume alcohol in some Delta parks. And joining me to talk more about this is Dylan Kruger, who is a City of Delta Councillor. Thanks so much for joining us.
4: Jill, thanks very much for having me.
0: So is this new for this particular this year that that it's not something that was happening last spring and summer? This is all new to Delta?
4: This is the first time we've done it, and you know, it's the second year in a row that we're heading into a summer that's gonna look very different than summers we've had in the past, perhaps even more so than last summer. We're not traveling this time, and this is this didn't happen last summer. We're not even supposed to be leaving our health districts, at least as of now. We'll see if that changes. So council, like other cities across the region, we're looking at how can we encourage people to get outside, stay at home, enjoy Delta, you know, local parks, also recognizing the fact that a lot of people don't have access to their own private green space, uh, people like myself who live in condos and others. Um, and now, even on top of that, where you know, restaurants have no diamond policies. So limited patio space as well. Kind of a neat opportunity to try it out like other cities have encourage people to take takeout from their local restaurant or their local brewery and, and enjoy some outdoor space here at home.
0: All right, so which parks will it be allowed in?
4: So it's just three parks that we're trying it off with this summer, one in each of our communities. So that's Memorial Park in Ladner, Baker Park in Tawawson, and North Delta Community Park up in North Delta.
0: And what was the process then in deciding which parks would be part of this pilot project?
4: So we worked with staff and uh, and looked at uh, other cities that have had successful projects. So Port Coquitlam, for example, was just finished their pilot last year, and now they they made this permanent change. We asked their staff, you know, well, how did you decide which parts to try to sell it at? And they did have very clear parameters. They said it had to be parks where there were number one ample access to garbage and recycling cans because littering can be a concern, as well as access to public washrooms. So that helped limit our scope a little bit, uh, and. These are three parks that kind of are natural hubs already for the community. They're places where people would like to go and spend time outside. And it, again, provides another option for people uh, to, to, to get outside and enjoy those parks uh, responsibly, uh, treating responsible adults like responsible adults.
0: And, and what are the the thought process then as far as people will be able to do this? And I would imagine, much like we've seen in other jurisdictions that have tried this, it's still the same when you talk about people being reasonable and responsible adults. Other other bylaws stay in place as far as noise bylaws and nuisance bylaws and that kind of thing.
4: Well, that's exactly it. You know, when we talk about safe consumption in public spaces, things that were illegal yesterday are still illegal today public intoxication is always wrong drinking and being rowdy at parks at two o'clock in the morning is not okay underage drinking is never okay but what we're doing is not penalizing otherwise law-abiding citizens for wanting to you know have a glass of craft beer or or bc wine at the park and not have to feel like they're hiding it in the tin cans like people are doing right now
0: Uh, And people, I I would imagine, too, much like other jurisdictions, this is probably already happening.
4: Well, I mean, I'll I'll, I'll say it right here. I I do it myself, right? When we're at the beach on a Friday night or, or whatever else and you've got it in your solo cup or your water bottle because you're afraid of being caught. But we're kind of. We're, we're we're creating this fear and stigma around something that's not actually inherently bad. It's a very North American kind of prohibition era holdover that we still have here. But you go to other places, you go to Europe, it's not a big deal. People have a glass of wine or a beer on at the park or the beach, and it, it's part of life. Like that's what I'm saying. Let's let's treat responsible adults like responsible adults. Obviously, still ensuring that irresponsible behavior um, is uh, is is dealt with accordingly, right?
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, with this project then is the idea that perhaps it could be expanded because as you just mentioned people will have a, a glass of wine or a beverage on the beach uh, If uh, you, I'll use uh, South Delta Tawasin as an example. Baker Park uh, it is a hub, a lot of people love going there but it's not really close to say if you lived in another part of Tawasin close to the beach, you would have to drive there. Uh, I would imagine people don't want to drive and shouldn't drive if they know they're going to have a couple of alcoholic beverages uh, so why not open it up to other areas as well, so it can actually be in people's more uh, closer to their homes.
4: Well, that's what I'd like to see. And I think that's the opportunity that this pilot project presents. And we're going to have the opportunity for public feedback throughout the summer as well as the end of the summer. And I'm hoping and expecting that, like other jurisdictions, we're going to find that there are, in fact, very few issues. Um, Fort Coquitlam found zero RCMP issues, one very minor bylaws issue, which was dealt with. And by and large, it seen as a good thing that, that regular people and families can take advantage of. So the hope is that we can build public trust and buy-in this summer. And then I would like to see it expanded in the future. I really believe that the way things are going 10 years from now, hopefully, this will be a non-issue. And it'll be just standard practice that, that responsible drinking is allowed in all of our public green spaces across the region.
0: Uh, when does this pilot project start? The uh, project starts June
4: 1st and will run until the end of September. Uh, from 11 a.m. until dusk, and of course, um, like I mentioned, all the other bylaws and uh, and legal requirements still abide, and our, our bylaws and Delta Police have signed off on this, and we'll be monitoring it and, uh, and taking it slow, but I fully expect, like other jurisdictions, it's going to be really successful, and we're going to find uh, that people are excited about it and want to see it come back next year.
0: Did you have any opposition, or did you encounter any opposition to this?
4: very little when we um, went out to the public on this and it was reported on in the news when you look online at the comments i'd say 95 percent in favor a couple people with the concerns that you outlined just with regards to whether it be underage drinking or breaking out for hours which as i explained was illegal and continues to be illegal i think most people are excited about the opportunity to be given freedom to make responsible choices and it really highlights the the fact the kind of nonsensical laws that are in place right now anyway so it's a great opportunity to try it out and-
0: Um, I'll throw this question at you uh, as well while you're here as far as patios because we've been talking a lot about patios uh, in Vancouver and other places as well and I know you had tweeted out uh, to support local breweries uh, in Delta, uh, Four Winds, uh, Barnside Brewing which uh, are great local local businesses. Uh, Is Delta also encouraging or making it easier for restaurants and places to have those patios and outside seating as we continue with these dining restrictions?
4: Yes, I was quite proud of that. We were actually the first uh, city in Metro to do this last year um, but for the first time. We really saying, how can we get out of the way and let restaurants and pubs and breweries do what they need to do to survive? So we've waived all patio fees and permits uh, up until the end of 2022. We've told the restaurants and, and brewery community, look, we, we can work with you. Can we give you free of charge sidewalk space, um, parking spaces, uh, street space, anything that we can do to help your uh, vibrancy and viability. And we found a really healthy offshoot of that is it's actually made our streets better. It's actually reanimated streets, made them public spaces where people want to be, even while we're being socially distanced. So I really hope that's a holdover that all cities can take as a lesson learned from the pandemic that even as hopefully one day things get back to normal, we want expanded patio space. We want people outside uh, taking up our sidewalk space because it makes our city stronger Makes our streets more interesting, and it helps all the businesses, not just the restaurants and the breweries.
0: All right, so we'll see how the project goes moving forward. Dylan Kruger, thanks so much for your time today.
4: Thanks very much for having me, Joe.
0: That is Dylan Kruger, a Delta City Councillor, talking about the pilot project for select parks. Uh, That's where alcohol will be allowed starting June 1st uh, and patios as well. Well, more details released earlier today, about a $500 million strategic investment fund to help BC-based businesses. So what is this all about? We are joined by Ravi Kalan, the Minister of Jobs, Economic Recovery and Innovation. Thanks so much for being with us.
5: Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me.
0: Hi. So this, we heard about this in the fall, the details of this. It's now been introduced. What will it actually do?
5: Well, this uh, fund is, uh, it's uh, groundbreaking, actually. There's no fund like this in in North America. We've uh, modeled it off of something that's happened in Ireland and Denmark, and now uh, the Scottish Bank has launched something similar. Uh, Essentially, it's a $500 million fund that will help BC companies uh, grow, uh, scale up, Um, and and stay here in British Columbia but it'll also be a fund that will help attract the investment we need to drive innovation whether that's to address climate change whether that's to uh, improve people's lives through health outcomes and so we're we're pretty excited about it and uh, it's going to set the path for a strong uh, economic recovery here in
0: BC. So how is it actually going to do that though?
5: So this fall, uh, the program, uh, the uh, new Crown Corporation, will be up and running. Uh, the businesses within B.C. only can apply. They can go to this new corporation. Uh, we're going to make an independent chief investment officer uh, who uh, will not be influenced by any government official or any board member. Uh, and they'll review all the applications they come from companies within B.C., uh, whether they're starting up or whether they're ready to really grow and scale up uh, and make decisions on making investments in them. Now, the one thing that's unique is we're not just going to write checks to companies uh, with this. Uh, what's unique about this is we, we invest in them and we actually take equity stakes. So when those companies grow and succeed, British Columbians get to see a benefit from
0: that growth. And uh, not to be a pessimist, but what if they don't grow and succeed?
5: Well, you know, if we want to see, for example, uh, some real innovation when it comes to addressing climate change, or uh, addressing um, uh, you know, um, vaccines or whatever that we need put research dollars into, there will be the odd time when uh, business that gets invested in uh, does not succeed. Um, but we are prepared, as we know, we already invest in companies. Uh, we're giving uh, millions of dollars to companies that are trying to uh, uh, innovate or do something groundbreaking, and sometimes they don't succeed either. And so our hope with this fund is we, have an independent chief investment officer which can look at all the business cases that are presented and support those that are willing to help us uh, advance the goals of this province which are a healthy planet um, healthy people and successful uh, employment opportunities for people um, as well as uh Uh, creating uh, profit for British
0: Columbians. Some of the language in this uh, says things uh, to, uh, as you say, attractive investment, uh, create family-supporting jobs. Uh, What does that mean? So a a company would apply under this plan? Does it have to have salaries that are a minimum amount? I I don't quite understand what what creating family-supporting jobs actually means.
5: Well, the investment uh, that uh, this body will do or this Crown Corporation will do will have mandates. For example, it needs to ensure that uh, not only companies in Metro Vancouver get supported, that there's a a, a rural representation or regional representation. Indigenous uh, led businesses also get a chance to participate in this. But we know that the innovation sector, whether it's carbon capture or uh, there's companies working on agritech they're all high-paying jobs. Uh, you know, it's usually uh, folks that are uh, cutting edge and, and really um, uh, moving the bar when it comes to uh, tech solutions. And so we know this is good-paying jobs, uh, and, and, and we're going to be focusing on those companies that already have that lens in their business plan as they put it forward.
0: Uh, It sounds like a great uh, opportunity for many companies and and something that uh, many people can look forward to. But uh, I can't help but think people are going to hear this today and say, great, this is something to look forward to for the future. Uh, In the meantime, though, here's a government that promised it would look at sick days and paid sick days. And still, there's been no movement on that. Why not focus more on what is staring people in the face right now? uh, Something like paid sick days.
5: Well, we are focused on that. You know, we've made the highest per capita supports for people and businesses in the country. uh, And it's by a long mile. And we're proud of that. And, you know, we know there's more needs to be done. We were hoping the federal government, uh, because they'd signaled that there would be more coming, at their budget would have something. It didn't. The Premier made clear today that now British Columbia is looking at a solution uh, to bring that in. Of course, it's a national scope. We want it to happen on a national level. Every province is dealing with it. The Premier was the first Premier to raise this issue, uh, and we're going to find a solution for it, just like we've been putting historic dollars to support businesses uh, through this pandemic, uh, and we're going to continue to find ways to support people.
0: Uh, but it seems like uh, we're hearing on a national level uh, they haven't uh, they haven't taken the lead on this. Uh, they haven't put this into place. Uh, we've seen other provinces, uh, Ontario, looking at this. It seems like it's provincial governments and federal go- and the federal government fighting back and forth.
5: Well, uh, again, you know, I think there was an understanding that uh, this is a national issue uh, and the federal government would have had to take a lead and work with us at the province level to find a solution. Uh, Again, we had signals that uh, we would see something in the budget. We did not. Our budget came the day after theirs. Uh, So that now leaves it to provinces to find their own solutions. I know Ontario has signaled they're looking at it and certainly we've uh, the premiers made it clear that we're looking at how to address it and there'll be more to be said on that in the very
0: near future. But why was there no mention of it in the budget?
5: The budget came uh, the day after the uh, federal budget uh, and so we were waiting for the federal government to signal whether they were, they were going to move in this direction uh, because we didn't get that. And, you know, budgets are drafted and put out um, uh, prepared uh, weeks before uh, and so, you know, we've made it clear that when they had dollars available, we would put dollars available. You know, we did put money in, the, in this budget to address the pandemic as the pandemic changes. And again, the Premier made clear today in the press conference that we would find solutions uh, to this challenge. And, but we're still urging the federal government to get involved.
0: Uh, would you agree that it is still a major issue that people are going to work sick?
5: Uh, of course, yes, we've been saying that from the, from day one, that uh, if you're sick, you should stay home. It's uh, a major issue that we've been raising from the beginning. Again, uh, Joe, you'll, you'll recall uh, the premier was the first premier at the all uh, ministers meeting with all the premiers and the prime minister at the table saying, we need this. At that time, he was the only one talking about it. No other premier wanted to even uh, uh, consider the idea. And the Prime Minister had suggested that they were interested and they would come up with a solution. The solution they've brought to this table so far has not been working. And so the Premier's made it clear that we're going to find our own solution here in British Columbia. Uh,
0: do you know if, if businesses have been taking advantage of the announcement just a few weeks ago, uh, the circuit breaker funding, as far as helping businesses get through this, those particularly hard hit uh, by these measures?
5: Businesses have. It's been a huge uptake. Uh, in particular, with the circuit breaker, um, you know, businesses that were going to re- receive up to $10,000, uh, we've doubled it uh, as of yesterday. So now businesses can receive up to $20,000. Uh, that program, by the way, was created with the business community. Uh, they gave us advice on how to structure it. And, uh, and it's been a huge success. We're also seeing a lot of dollars going out. With our uh, small business recovery grant program, which is about $145 million of supports that have gone to businesses. And we've got thousands of applications that have come just in the last few weeks. So uh, all those supports are uh, starting to flow to businesses. And that's not to even mention, uh, you know, we've cut 25% of liquor pricing for liquor stores, uh, property tax relief, uh, tax credits for businesses that hire or rehire employees. Again, one of the most comprehensive packages in Canada. And, and you know, I'll say that there's a reason, I think, why we are seeing 108 100.8% of pre-pandemic job levels in B.C. Uh, it's because a lot of those supports have been putting in place. Of course, we've got some tough days ahead, but we're going to continue to be nimble and flexible and find supports uh, as we need them.
0: All right, Minister, we'll have to leave it there. We're out of time. But thanks so much for joining us with us today. Appreciate it. Yeah. Anytime. Thanks for having me, Joe. Bye. Ravi Kalan, the Minister of Jobs, Economic Recovery and Innovation.